Dearest ladies, gentlemen, and noble peerage adverse to gender identifiers, we cordially welcome one and all to what is highly anticipated to be the soiree of the season. Your hosts, two humble debutantes, are courteously joined at the Grand Howabout House by the most incomparable of duchesses for what is sure to be the most jovial of occasions. So settle in your drawing rooms for an exquisite auditory exhibition of elegance and perhaps even scandal in today's episode of Ear Content. Wesley, Wesley, Wesley. Good morning. How are you today, my friend? Um, a little worse for wear, to be honest. I, I, I went to see Chase and Status last night. Yeah, because live arts is back, baby. <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, so how was Chase and Status? Oh, it was so good. Uh, like, honestly, yeah. there was a, there was like a little, um, little bit of paranoia in the back of my mind the whole time about COVID. But mm. after I'd had a few beers and stuff, but it, it was so rowdy, man. It was like literally yeah. the way it used to be. It's so good. I went and um, saw the American drag queen uh, Juju B uh, at the Clapham Ground with my sister earlier this week. Absolutely oh, yeah. incredible. I didn't yeah. realize. Well, I knew how much I missed live arts and and being in that like atmosphere. <laughs> But then once I was actually there and living it, it was like, oh my god, the feeling and the ecstasy was just... That's like the feeling of ecstasy, not me taking Class A drugs <laughs> at the gig. <laughs> no, mate, I know what you mean. Yeah, I played a show you on had, Tuesday as well. I was about and, to say, uh, you had your first gig back performing this week, so how was that? Oh, it was, it was sick, man. It, like, it wasn't the, the most packed out room in the world, but there was a lot of my friends there, which was super important. And I've kind of mm. like just been rethinking over the last couple of years what I want from music and stuff, and that is one of the things. Just a room full of my my people just enjoying my music. That was really really cool. Yeah, I think finding an audience who appreciates what you do and connecting with them is such an important thing when creating. So yeah, oh, that's really nice to hear. Well, anyway, thank you to whoever's tuning in or having a listen. Tuning in, that's very radio, isn't it? It's a podcast, you stream, you don't tune in. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're listening to Ear Content. This is episode two, our second ever episode. We're going to be joined in this episode by the wonderful Olivia Williamson. Um, you may know her on social media as Livan. She's a wonderful musical theatre performer and social media personality, so it's going to be super fun chatting with her. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I think I jinxed things last week when I said for once I'm not ashamed to be English. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't come home, which, you know, that's, it was a wonderful tournament. We did well. It was, you know, it didn't come home, but... It's coming home in 2022. Yeah, you can't complain. Yeah, you can't, well... <sighs> well, about the team. Yeah, you can't complain about the team. I just want to start by saying I was in London for the final and my overall experience was really positive. 
there was a lot of good vibes in high spirits. They didn't have a grim layer of aggression and arrogant self-importance to them. So I really was mm-hmm. gutted to see what should have been a really positive day, tainted by some of the videos at Wembley later on of people smashing through the barriers and assaulting stewards for entry. The, the entitlement of it is just disgusting. And then the videos as well yeah. of various fights across the country in pubs and town centres. And like speaking from my own personal experience, it's why so many of us feel excluded from the sport and reluctant to get involved yeah. in the game. And it's definitely one of the reasons why I, especially during my formative years, was very distant from sport in general. And to be honest, I don't think it's anything to do with the game at all. And it's everything to do with a certain portion of men thinking they can do whatever the fuck they want without any regard for people but themselves. Yeah, it was was quite sad to see, to be honest. It's absolutely heartbreaking, man. Um, Cultural icon Bimini Bomboulash made a statement afterwards. Obviously, she's... A huge LGBT plus IQ plus big LGBTQ plus. I don't know how many letters there are nowadays. <laughs> she's a huge <laughs> queer icon in this country, and she's also has a notable foot in the football world. Her first runway appearance on Drag Race, the show that propelled her to stardom, was a football-themed drag look. So she's no stranger to being a queer person in a football space and she made a statement on Twitter saying I'm not anti-football I like it I'm anti-double standards, misogyny domestic violence and queerophobia that is sadly attached to it I am also aware that the demographic are part of a culture where emotions are repressed and football is an accepted way for men to release these pent up emotions It is never acceptable for any of this violence, but we must have a wider conversation where love and acceptance is normalised and where we seek to eradicate hatred of all forms, starting with deconstructing toxic masculinity. I hear that. Fucking preach, Bimini. Like, I don't give a fuck if it ain't all men. It's men, innit? Like, it's it's our our creed, our gender doing the... Yeah. I did, and yeah, it's, it is. They're right. It's part of a massive systemic issue, I guess. But yeah, yeah, conversations do need to be had, and hopefully, we can be a driving force in some of those. <laughs> now, I mean, let's, the racism, I think, is a lot less of a nuanced situation in this case. Uh, how yeah. fucking primitive do you have to be to? throw around such blatant racial abuse like go live up an arsehole if you want to act like a piece of shit all the time yeah like I don't think there's any like I think obviously I've said before like I think there is nuanced conversations that need to be had around racism and how we act but if you're straight up just throwing around pathetic blatant racial abuse then it's just Oh, makes my blood boil. You know, that was really, really sad to see. And yeah, the fact that we have such a diverse team and so, like just something to be so proud of and people are just fucking it up. Yeah, I mean, these lads have worked their whole lives for this. They step onto a worldwide platform as incredible role models for this country and that undermines 
by people acting like total fucking bellends. And these yeah. people who are acting like bellends are going to be patriots as well. And so many of us struggle to feel any sense of pride for our flag because of these wank stains, man. I mean, yeah. racism I'd like aside... To, I'd like uh, to see them try a penalty, man. Edit. Like, racism aside, I personally round up every single person, racist or not, who has ever made Saka sad and have them removed from the face of the earth if I could. <laughs> He's your favourite, isn't he? I love Saka. <laughs> He's a king. No, you're right, mate. This is it's disgusting. Um, we are going to touch on some issues surrounding race with Liv today, and she has um, a much more interesting insight than Casper the Ghost and the Michelin Man over here. <laughs> so, yeah, that will be fun. Um, well, I say fun. It'll be interesting, definitely. Yeah. Also in this episode, our favourite pretend film director talks about his latest project, and we hear an American Pie-inspired musical number, and we'll be posting that on the video for that on our Instagram as well. But first, before we introduce Liv, here is a new football chant, which we think better encapsulates the state of the country. Real England fans were cheering in the pub When a bunch of fucking racists then showed up Ruin it for ticket payers, abused our lovely players Racist you don't stand for England, you're just scum Wanna chant about the RAF then look at facts Battle of Britain featured lots of foreign chaps Flying for the RAF, risking life or death We're a multicultural country and that's that Hello, so thank you for joining us, Liv. Uh, we're very happy to have you here today. Um, so you are an actor, influencer, musical theatre expert, I would say. In my personal opinion, anyway. Oh, I love you. what you do. You're always posting about uh, musical theatre online and whatnot, and I'm a big musical theatre fan, so I love that. Um, you also have an amazing account where you post about books, and you just generally bring a lot of positivity to Instagram. So I was just wondering, when did you first start posting on Instagram and make kind of content creating and get into that side of things? Yeah, well, I kind of fell into it, I think. Um, about a year or two ago, I was basically, it's a bit embarrassing, um, I fell for like a, a, what's it called, MLM like pyramid scheme basically oh, yeah. <laughs> and um they sold it as something else and I was like oh okay this sounds good the products are good and I literally did it for about uh like a little while and I was like wait a second this is <laughs> this is a scam I don't want to do this um but because I had kind of learned to post about the products and connect with people um I wanted to continue that on um past you know pushing a brand that necessarily wasn't ethical um in what I believed in um so yeah I started talking about different things like um yeah what I believe in I do still do like some collabs but only like products that I like and use anyway um and yeah I think it's just over the past year it's just become easier to do because obviously with lockdown you know I've had a lot more free time so I've put kind of more effort into that as a creative outlet at least you got something out of it as well. Because, I mean, most people, like you say, they just get the embarrassment of their MLM. I mean, there's a bit yeah. of... And you see so many people. I mean, it's not just... Um, like, it's not just idiots who fall for these things at all. You see, like, really intelligent people, like, doing it. And you just think, okay. And then, like, you see them doing it for, like, a month or two. And you're like, wait a minute. This looks... 
what is this thing you're posting about? This seems a bit strange. And then, yeah, so it does catch people out. But it's really cool that you kind of picked up skills along with it and you kind of thought, well, this kind of sucks, but I've kind of picked up these skills and kind of transferred that and used that for your own benefit. So that's one of the few good things to come out of those, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's funny how every week we talk about kind of the, the best and the worst things about social media and that one's not come up yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised actually because a lot of people when I talk about, you know, social media, they're always like, oh, I'm, if they've got like a bigger following, they're getting messages in their DMs every day saying, oh, I've got a great business opportunity for you. And yeah. that's normally, normally not a great business opportunity. So <laughs> it's definitely, you know, one of the, the negatives of Instagram. Although I know, you know, to be fair, some people actually do get on well with it and, you know, there's people at the top and they're obviously doing well. So, you know, if it works, if it works for them, fair enough. Yeah. And so you kind of moved on to Instagram as well. You said you've had a lot more time because of COVID. Your background is in acting and in theatre. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, of course. So uh, I've always kind of been in to the arts I did you know drama and music at school um and then I after my A-levels I did a two-year BTEC course in musical theatre um before um going to drama school so I went to the London School of Musical Theatre I trained there for a year um on their like intensive diploma course and then got an agent in my last couple of weeks and went on to kind of auditioning and stuff like that I was in a short film and I've done some extra work and stuff like that but to be honest because of covid like we were just saying it's it's I've not been able to experience what a lot of other graduates experience because I did only have six months in the industry of course um I was wondering in terms of drama school what was the process of applying for those like because um I do some acting stuff as well with like how about gang and that but I kind of stick to the more comedic sketch side of comedy acting and I think that is very much a kind of security blanket from the big scary world of theatre which is very intense and very serious and I've always loved performing but the thought of going to performing arts college and having to like audition in those kind of environments terrifies me. So I was just wondering how you kind of navigated that. Well, honestly, it is quite scary. The audition process is very different with each drama school that you go for. So I, before the BTEC course, I did actually audition for um, three-year courses um, and didn't get into any that I wanted to go to. I auditioned for three years in a row before I got into the London School of Musical Theatre. And like with a lot of drama schools, and, and people don't really realise this, they kind of say, you know, oh, you're either amazing and you get in, or you're not quite good enough and you don't get in. But actually, pretty much everyone I know didn't get in on their first attempt. Um, they even, I think they say at some drama schools, like the average of all of the first year students is their fourth attempt of getting in. Um, wow. So it's it's definitely, um, you've got to have the determination and uh, to actually, you know, keep going back when you're getting the nose. Uh, but you know what? Um, the drama school that I went to was a really different experience to a lot of the other auditions that I'd done before. Whereas the others, you're in massive, massive groups. Sometimes you only get to perform like a little bit of a song, a little bit of an, a monologue, and then, and then you're cut. Whereas with this... Uh, with LSMT, um, I got to perform the song of my choice. They listened to it, liked it. Then they were like, okay, what else have you got? Um, And I basically went through my whole repertoire with them and just had a nice chat with them, 
which was really nice. And, you know, I think the important thing to know, especially if anyone's wanting to go on to drama school, is that you're not just um, auditioning for them. You're also auditioning the drama school itself to see if you want to go there because it has to be the right fit because everything's going to be different. There's some drama schools that are, you know, would fit people who are quite serious, only want to go into um, films, like, I don't know, and then there's others that are very stagey, some that suit more, like, comedy sketch sort of people. Like, they're all very different. So I think it's just about doing your research and, and persevering if, you know, you don't quite get what you want. <laughs> yeah, so is the relationship quite, like, mutually beneficial? Do you think that's kind of the reason why it's so kind of competitive because they want to find the best but also the right students for them and they also want to get students who are going to get the most out of it I guess because if you get the right students and those students do well I guess that reflects well on them. 100% it's quite interesting actually because with the like dancey drama schools they have a really really big intake with like hundreds of students every year and I think with what they kind of aim to do is that the more people they take like, oh, at least one or two will do well. Mm. Whereas there's some schools, like, um, I'm, I'm, like I'm not sure of the name, but there's, uh, I think it might be Bristol Old Vic that have, like, 14 students or something like that. And it's because they want them all to go on to great things. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely some, some schools don't care how many people they get as long as they get a few names and other people really are invested in every single student. And I definitely felt like where I went and they cared about each individual person for sure that's awesome that is so important Tina are you thinking of going back to school uh no not at all I don't I think my (laughs) education (laughs) days are behind me um I'd love to like I say like the idea of going to drama school seems fantastic and I reckon I'd love the environment and that but I also just think I'm not I'm not cut out for it. <laughs> I'm not cut out for the intensity. Like I think I would. I love working in the creative sphere. So I went to university. My degree is in media and communications, but I specialised in television. Like my full degree title is media and communications, and then in brackets television. <laughs> nice. And I absolutely loved doing my degree, and but mainly the practical thing. So that was kind of actually about how how about gang came about. I kind of dabbled in things through that and how about gang was kind of what stuck so I did really enjoy my degree but the writing side of things so I love like reading about media theory and social theory and cultural theory but when I had to do it for university it put me off it so much like there'd be books that I read now for fun that I had to read at uni and it was like <laughs> a chore or they'd be like yeah pick like a research project you're interested in and I'd pick a research topic and then I'd be like do the research and I'm like sick that was so much fun and I'm like now you've got to write up the essay and it was like nah you want me to it's write so interesting how the environment affects like what you want to talk about because I'm sure, like, if it was a verbal essay on what you were doing now, you'd probably love to talk about it. Absolutely. And, like, what it is, I think I could have probably gone up in front of, like, the the class and done, like, a presentation on whatever with just as much information as the essay. And I would have felt very comfortable. But is there a little theory at, like, um, drama schools or is it all just the practical? Um, We literally did one, um, one, like 
quiz I'm not even sure if that counted towards it um I know a lot of others do have a lot of theory but because mine was a one-year course the majority of us um had already done a degree or done some sort of course before like I was one of the youngest there um there was like people even like in their 30s who were on this course so um it was kind of a real fast step into literally getting an agent and getting in the industry rather than necessarily learning about you know everything do you leave with a qualification um um i think i think so i think i've got a diploma <laughs> yeah like you say, if, if it's you just do. about education, it doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, yeah, we do we do have qualification, but yeah, it is more about kind of that fast track into the industry. Yeah. Um, so what kind of other productions have you been in? So I know whilst you were training, you performed in Lend Me a Tenor at the Bridwell yeah. Theatre in London. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I know, that was actually so, so much fun. It's a show that not many people have heard of, and I hadn't have heard, heard of it before either. Um, and it's a very kind of farce, there's a who did it, kind of clowns running around. It's, it's very chaotic, but in like a really wonderful way. And honestly, that was so much fun. I was, I was in the ensemble for that, but like everyone felt so, so involved because it just was such a lovely creative experience, the director the musical director, just everyone involved was just really nice. Um, was it a big cast? Um, it was quite a big cast. So the year group was split into two. Uh, so it was about 20, I'd say, in each cast. Um, so, yeah, but it was, there was a lot of roles, which is, which is good. Um, and, yeah, the, the audience were always, like, in hysterics, which was, which was a really great experience. <laughs> That's good. It's always good to have good audience reaction. It gives you something to feed back off. Even just when you're being part of the ensemble, it gives you that. Like the ensemble pops when the audience is reacting because everyone is like feeding off of the energy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's also, real buzz. Tenor, tenor is spelled T E N O R. It's yeah. a pun. Uh... <laughs> Lend me a tenor. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a musical, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so like you said you only had about six months out in the industry before coronavirus hit um mm. what was it like kind of being making your first kind of steps into the industry just to have that kind of pulled back right away it was so strange because I started off in such a strong place like before I'd even finished drama school um I got to got quite a few rounds into um six do you know six a musical is that um the henry the eighth wives one yeah yeah it's literally like the six uh wives of henry the eighth in a pop band basically it's really cool Um, (laughs) and at the time like it was like the most viral musical like i know there's such a big fandom so to get that far within the process i did like four or five rounds and still be in the running and I was like oh my gosh I've just come out like this is going to be amazing um I didn't get the role partly because I look quite young which you know is is a bit of a problem as well I mean even getting that far at that stage though is incredible yeah yeah it it was amazing and then I had a recall for Les Mis and Wicked like all in the West End and I was like oh my gosh this is like amazing I'm I'm here with people who have been in the industry for ages so it was it was feeling really good and there was then like a little bit of a quiet phase for a couple of months um just because just how the industry is 
certain um, months there's more casting because they cast like for a certain time ahead of when all the shows debut um and then I was getting some really interesting plays that I was going up for and um like my agent was telling me like oh this casting director really likes you he didn't you know see you for this role but he would love to see you again for something else so I was kind of impressing the right people I didn't feel defeated like six months actually isn't a very long time in in the grand scheme of things so it was going really well so then yeah when Covid hit and all the musicals kind of closed it was kind of heartbreaking in a way because I felt like I was so close to getting that big break. How has you kind of seen the effect on the industry as a whole so I've kind of mainly situate myself within the comedy sphere. I know that there's a campaign of Save Live Comedy and so many people in the industry have been posting about it and there's been a real call to action to kind of keep artists going and keep comedians supported who have obviously lost such a significant amount of income. Is there similar sort of efforts within like the musical theatre-specific communities? Yeah, for sure. Um, there was a show on a little while ago, at, like Night at the Musicals on the BBC, and it was some of the the best musical theatre performers kind of came on, and it was kind of a plea to kind of save the arts, because it was not long after that whole, I don't know if you saw them, the Fatima was a ballerina, but now she's retraining in cyber. Did you see yeah. any of those posters? <laughs> And as funny as they were, and I did really find them quite funny to start with, the the kind of reality sunk in. I'd been doing kind of just odd jobs here and there um, for about a year. And I was kind of thinking, okay, um, if this is going to continue this way, the reality is I might have to retrain. Like I can't live off uh, at this small wage and not a full time job for the foreseeable future. So it was kind of getting to the point where I'm like, Okay, you know, maybe I do need to go into cyber. (laughs) It's interesting as well, like, because ballet is kind of on the more high end of arts in just the way that it's kind of socially perceived and it's kind of seen as high culture as opposed to something maybe like street dancing. It's a more highly regarded, well-respected by the elite. So it's interesting it's like yeah this is like the arts revalue where does that leave you if you are a street dancer or (laughs) like the people the government like do respect even they they don't they don't respect the people the government respect the government don't respect yeah not enough to, to consider their job as viable enough to not go into something else basically yeah and it's definitely had a massive effect on the casting as well like we're seeing shows now that are coming back you can book tickets for quite a lot of musicals now but there's a lot of kind of stunt casting so whereas they might have given people like me an opportunity to star in a leading role um they're now kind of using celebrities because it'll get people in seats which is completely fair enough and what they need to do to be honest for the industry but at the same time it's a little bit more difficult now for people who aren't well known to get those parts. Of course, I imagine when the entire industry's been out of work, so even though the TV and screen and celebrity industry have had most of their work cut, they're all itching yeah. to get parts, they're going to get them out there and make some money as well. So they're all going to be fighting for opportunities that normally they might not consider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the situation of it all at the moment, but I'm definitely kind of widening my horizons into kind of looking at other avenues as well not just musical theatre because you know in this industry you can't really afford to be kind of 
single-minded into one route. Absolutely. Did you do any Zoom stuff? Um, I did a few... Well, I do a lot of self-tapes. So, yeah, rather than going into auditions, I record like this. Um, and I also... I used to teach musical theatre as well, so I did quite a few... I taught a few Zoom dance classes, <laughs> which was, you know, a bit mad. But, um, yeah, it's it has been pretty quiet. So if they can kind of not Zoom, then I think... They are not doing it. <laughs> the following sketch is from episode two of the YouTube series, How About with Tea and Bunyan. In that episode, we go on a journey exploring the theme of love. If you like what you hear, check it out on the How About Gang YouTube now. Ah, oh, shucks. I'm going to be a virgin forever. Hey there, Jim. Uh, hi? Who's there? Don't mind me, I'm just a warm apple pie. Heard you're looking for a lover and I need a guy. Well, I need a woman. Jimmy, let's be real, you need to lower those hopes. Still worried you're a virgin, I can show you the ropes. That's sweet, but... Homemade no McDonald's baked with care by your mother But I'll still call you daddy if you make me your lover It is tempting Jimmy baby come on what you doing to me You make my apples quiver with your sensitivity Practice makes perfect you don't have a clue it's true Stick your dick in me and I'll show you what to do now do you want some Well, I suppose that's no lie. So come cut off a slice of this American pie. My crust will blush. A naughty little secret, we can keep it hush, hush. You haven't got a lady beneath a sexual high. So come cut off a slice of this American pie. <sighs> Will, uh, will, uh, just tell your mother that we ate it all. In terms of expanding outside of just, like, musical theatre and stuff, you've really made the most of COVID to kind of expand your portfolio and kind of develop different skills. I mean, obviously, I know you as, like, an actor, musical theatre, performer, but that just seems like a very small facet of your kind of online personality and what you present. And I think you do a really good job of kind of giving us an insight into various different aspects of you, whether it comes from social issues to kind of hair and beauty to books. Um, so in terms of your book Instagram, could you tell us a wee bit about that? Yeah, of course. Thank you, by the way, for your lovely words. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I've always loved reading. Um, it's definitely, you know, one of the best ways to learn, I think. Um, and I started, you know, getting into reading a bit more with lockdown, more spare time. And I did set myself a goal of like reading 50 books in a year, which was quite a, a big number for me, because normally I just kind of pick up one if I'm feeling like it, like if I'm commuting. Um, but I really, really got into it. And I'd before I was just reading like romance, like chick flicks in books basically 
But I widened my kind of genres to like thriller. I read some more um, books by black authors, by, you know, different sorts of people from different places. And I really enjoyed it. And I kind of wanted to share this passion with everyone else because I know, you know, during the first, very first lockdown, like hardly anyone I knew was actually going into work or even be able to work from home if they worked in like the entertainment industry or, you know, anything like waitressing and stuff so yeah I wanted to encourage other people to read um by posting some reviews and stuff like that and I had a really great response I I you know I've kind of just did it to track my reading and and obviously to share my passion but when I get dms and messages saying oh you got me back into reading I bought this book and and now I read all the time it it means a lot and I'm you know I'm grateful for that it's amazing to see the interaction you have on that account. And there is so many people who comment and respond and offer their own perspectives. Um, do you think that the Instagram book community has expanded generally over lockdown? I mean, from my perspective, it seems that like the kind of push for reading on social media has kind of hit a new high. Yeah, definitely. I actually hadn't heard of it until um, a girl I knew through... Um, acting actually had a bookstagram and said oh you should get involved if you like reading um and yeah I found it and I posted my first picture thinking maybe my mum and like a friend would be like oh you know great account or whatever and I had so many like oh welcome to this community from like so many different blogs and there's honestly so many people in it and and a lot of them have hundreds and thousands of followers which I really were you know didn't expect because it is such a superficial world at the moment there's there's so many influencers you know advertising the next kind of diet pill or you know fillers or whatever so to see something so kind of wholesome was really nice yeah you've got so you, I see you started it in February yeah you've got a lot of followers and they are clearly quite active because you're still getting 400 likes and stuff on how did you build so many followers so quick you know what I think it is genuinely just engaging with other people um I if I see someone who's read a book that I've also read I'll be, share my thoughts on that and and vice versa and you know with my uh, main Instagram I've got more followers than on my book account but I've been growing that for a lot longer um and and it started off as just a place where people like know me like I know I'd say I know like half of half of my followers on my normal account whereas on bookstagram I'm I don't I hardly know anyone and a lot of them aren't even my friends they're just people who are interested in books as well so I think it does come from a niche and and people want to support other people in their niche I think as well, something that does kind of benefit you a lot that I've kind of noticed is that you are very genuine on your social media and it never really feels like you're putting on a performance or that you're trying to influence or that you're putting on like a paid promotion. Everything does feel like it's something you've put up and it feels quite natural and sincere. And I think people do respond well to that when they don't feel like they're being sold to. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that because... Yeah, that is something that I'm cautious of because um, when do people do like offer me a brand deal or um, a collaboration, I'm always conscious not to put too many back to back. I don't want to bombard anyone or, or feel like they're following a page that is just advertisement because I do like to genuinely connect with people and, you know, just offer genuine recommendations. Half the recommendations I do are just because I want to talk about it. They're just off my own back. 
Um, so, yeah, and I, I do think that I am um, genuine on on my social media as much as I, I can be. And I try to open up about when I'm not feeling great as well and different things like that to connect with people. And, and you know what? When people DM me, I open up a chat with them and I think they really appreciate that because some people are kind of untouchable in a way. Not that I'm anything special, but if you don't know someone, sometimes people aren't approachable. Whereas, like, I'm happy, like, if I post a story and someone has a question, like, I'm happy to start a conversation and just, you know, have a chat with them. And I think that's something that people value. Especially in the current day where there is kind of both generally in the modern age where everything is kind of false online and there appears to be this sort of window behind, like, in front of reality where there's, like, a disconnect from everyone but even more so in the times of COVID where we get actively can't go out and see people, little interactions like that online can mean the world to people. Yeah, 100%. And it's even actually got to the point where I've made some friends on online just through common interests, and we've actually met up now for walks in real life. And that was something that I'd never have thought would have happened like a year ago, that I'd have actually made, you know, new real-life friends from social media. Hey, I've just spotted something. Uh, the Robert Battenbat uh, t-shirts. What? Oh, what? My ones? Your ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought you had one for a second. No. Do you listen to the Weekly Planet, though? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Oh, mate. That is my absolute favourite podcast, other than How About Gang, of course. <laughs> I feel like I'm out of some secret club. What's the Weekly Planet? The Weekly Planet is these two Australian guys that just chat... Uh, m- movies, TV, comic books they're so fucking funny honestly mm-hmm. like I can sit and listen to like all their podcasts in a row uh, for days it's so good, it's really worth checking out and I had to get the t-shirt because um, I'm a Robert, Batten- <laughs> Robert Pattinson stan <laughs> I almost said Robert Pattinson um, and he's going to be <laughs> Batman <laughs> so I I'm just so excited am- for this same i'm so excited for that movie matt reeves as well the director he directed um dawn of the planet of the apes which is one of my favorite films yeah. oh nice yeah i feel like one. a lot of people are judging um the casting but honestly probably people just know him from harry potter and, and twilight but he's actually been in so much in he's since an then. insane actor he's brilliant isn't he yeah, yeah. He's incredible. Have you seen I think the he'll be a great one job. of him wanking in space jail. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's like a wank machine that like harvests him in space jail. <laughs> Is that what the film's called? Wanking in space jail. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not even, I don't think he's wanking. I think he gets like harvested. I can't really remember the film that well. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, um, the um, podcast with Weekly Planet basically t- d- do a podcast and then put funny things they say on a t-shirt so maybe the how about gang should come out with a <laughs> working in space t-shirt <laughs> yeah i'll buy it <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find the name of the film just so people don't think i'm actually insane good time i think it was is it that one no no, no it's, it's not definitely that not that that's like a heist film well, not heist. high life on the high run. life it's called oh okay Nice. Well, I'll add that to my um, to my watch list. <laughs> yeah, high life. Harvesting wank in space. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed Good Time, actually. That was interesting because he obviously is 
you know, an attractive man and he is like that heartthrob kind of character, but in good time, he was kind of gross. (laughs) And it was interesting to see that because not many actors like, well, I don't mean to, you know, be offensive in any way, but even Zac Efron, the grossest thing he's been is Ted Bundy and he's still, he's still attractive. Like he's a horrible guy, but you know, he's, yeah. Whereas Robert Pattinson actually pulls off being, Gross. <laughs> Have you seen The yeah. Lighthouse? No, I need to grubby, see it. Grubby, grubby man. <laughs> oh, and um, a devil in all... I think oh. it's called devil in all time. He's a bit gross in that, that as well. I haven't seen that yet, is that? So it's gross in that. Yeah. Shall I... I might watch that tonight, shall I? Yeah. Right. Tom Holland, Robin Pattinson, Batman and Spider-Man, yes. Ooh. Yeah, it's <laughs> like pretty that. immense. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um... I wanted to talk about as well. So also on your Instagram, you kind of do talk a lot about social issues and that. And that's very beneficial to people like me who are very interested in social issues, but obviously are straight white men and kind of sit in a more privileged position than some. And we kind of do have, I don't know, I feel like, not speaking generally, people in my position can sometimes be ignorant to more like more generally what's going on and more disenfranchised groups. Obviously, that's not the case entirely, but obviously there is cases where that happens. So I always yeah. want to be involved in conversations with people who can give their personal experience because there's no point in talking about race with just white men because you're not going to get an accurate idea of anything and i think everyone can pretty much agree with that so it's always useful when people kind of go out their own way obviously people of color don't owe people anything like people like i can't you can't go up to anyone they don't owe you an explanation or you can't just go up to like someone on the street and be like can you tell me about your experience of (laughs) being black or can you tell me about your experience of being asian or it's kind of it's a bit intrusive so when people share this information off their own back and kind of give their own experience i think it's a really important thing and i really appreciate it is was that something you actively decided to do or to be honest I don't think it was um like you said before I'm kind of quite authentic on my Instagram there's nothing that I don't you know necessarily want to talk about so naturally um when I'm that's on my mind it's something that I want to talk about on my social media platform so um it was always something that I you know if I saw a post about the mixed race experience or um kind of a quality I would be happily like share it on my story and stuff like that but um during um George Floyd's kind of death and that wave of the Black Lives Matter movement I felt almost guilty if I didn't say something on my platform because I'm always talking about kind of smaller issues insignificant things I thought if I you know if I don't say anything then you know that that is not good so I think the first video I posted kind of dedicated to that, actually on my YouTube channel, I talked about books by black authors. So that was kind of incorporating, you know, my bookstagram as well. Um, um, And just gradually I've just talked a bit more about it. Um, And people, you know what, it's kind of interesting. Some people really respond well to it. But I do notice every single time I talk about something race related, I lose about 30 followers. 
which is really, really sad. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I always like to think of other people's perspectives. And I think if I'm following someone, you know, for like hair tips, you know, perhaps I don't want to be bombarded with social justice issues. But at the same time, like, I'm not, it, that's not all my content. I'm, I do a mixed kind of bag of different things. So I feel like if you follow me and like me for one sort of content, you should kind of respect and hear my views on, on this, you know, even if you don't agree with them. So it's definitely a, a difficult one. Hey, it's Editing Weds from the future. Uh, I don't know what happened here, but there was a massive glitch in my audio. <laughs> Uh, and I thought I could just reiterate what I was going to say because it kind of uh, it kind of directs the conversation in, in a certain way and Liv says some really important stuff. So basically what I was saying was about inter- internalised guilt and uh, when these things first came up, people had to look at themselves really introspectively and a lot of people, at least myself, just felt a guilt and got very defensive quite quickly. Um, uh, so that's basically what I said and Liv went from there yeah it's it's so sad though because um, I'm never ever kind of blaming anyone and I think a lot of people um, and kind of from what you were saying as well like that internalised guilt even if you haven't like been racist or anything but like everybody that's actually a musical quote everybody's a little bit racist <laughs> you know um not um necessarily um outright but there's like smaller things that people have become realized that like you may not have realized your white privilege I didn't realize or notice my privilege as someone who's lighter skin than you know someone who's completely black um and like fetishization can't say that word um and like you know stuff like that it's it's I understand that, but at the same time, if you know in yourself that, you know, you're a good person, then you don't need to feel guilty. You just need to listen and and learn. I think a lot of it is internalised guilt as well, because when you say I'm not blaming anyone, I think what it is, people see these things and like, even though you're not blaming anyone, they notice that it applies to them and they feel offended and they feel defensive. And it's like, no, there's nothing to be defensive about. Like, reflect learn but for them it's just like they feel attacked they're like they feel like they're being called racist and it's like racism isn't just you know i don't like this race i don't like them there's smaller Mm. microaggressions that have come about through the kind of racial institutionalized racism in society that's kind of conditioned us all to have these certain subconscious thoughts and Mm. the way we respond to people is all coded through what we've seen in the media and so the way we react to people it's not always conscious and then when we hear it called out people think well no no well I'm not racist so yeah you can't say that that's racist because I'm not racist so I need to be defensive Mm. about that Mm. but at the same time I do understand that defensive behavior but it's definitely something that people kind of need to work on because for me for example like um just switching it for a second like say with sexuality I'm literally like the biggest ally for the LGBTQ plus community but um when I was like 10 or 11 I used gay as an insult I'm completely aware that's wrong I would never do that now 
But if someone said, oh, like, you shouldn't use gay as an insult, I wouldn't get defensive because I know that's wrong and I don't do mm. it. I, I did it when it wasn't when I was young and I di- wasn't aware of it. And I'm sorry for that. And But, like, it's about learning, changing your ways and then supporting that community in whatever way you can. And I think that's something that a lot of people kind of miss out on. No, it's, uh, that's exactly it. And we were, me and my housemate were looking through uh, Facebook posts and we, yeah. got, we got Facebook when what? When we were like 13, 14? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. Some of the stuff that we were saying. Actually, I really wasn't that bad. Mostly mine was just the people commenting on it, but they were my friends. Yeah. yeah. Calling things gay and like... And even, like, later when um, people started referencing community, like, huh, gay? Like, yeah. everyone yeah. got that that was ironic, but still, it was just, like, using the word in a negative... In a yeah. negative... Yeah. I mean, even say, like, like, yeah, 13, 14, I can't pretend that well into when I was, like, 18, 19, 20, that there was still things that I'd use that were just not acceptable. And yeah. it wasn't because... I was being malicious, it's because I just didn't know better. Which sounds yeah. like, a, oh, I didn't know better. I'm not asking for it to be excused. I'm just giving, like, that, reason, that yeah. was the reason why I was like that. And I'm using it as not an excuse. I'm using that as a way of saying, look, you can learn, reflect and educate yourself. It's not Exactly, yeah. Hard. And that's the most important what? thing because you can get in a position where you're so defensive that then you then don't take any information in, so then don't change your ways. And then you'll always have that guilt because you always have that kind of opinion and those traits i guess mm-hmm. exactly that um one video on your instagram that was really hugely successful um you talked about um colorblind casting and in particular a production of hairspray that you took part in mm. and this video <laughs> genuinely shook me could you just tell us a little bit about the absurdity that we laugh it's not funny but it is so yeah, absurd, it is a little it is bit crazy. funny. Yeah, so I was actually so nervous to post about this, actually, because at the time, um, I knew it was bad, but I didn't say anything. And that is something that I, I regret, 100%. But then also, I kind of have forgiven myself because I had a lot going on at the time, and, and I was a bit younger. And also, when it is people, teachers and people of authority who's kind of saying, this is okay and you're younger, I was a teenager at the time, it made me feel like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's just in my head, maybe it's my own insecurities. So basically what had happened is um, I was in a production of Hairspray and um, there was two different casts. So every single um, character had two people who would play them on, like, alternating nights. Um, For those who don't know, Hairspray is a musical about, um, well, set in the 60s, about segregation um, and kind of stopping that. Um, and half of the characters are black. So I played a black character called Inez. Um, and, you know, it was such a... It, honestly, it was one of the favorite, my favourite parts that I've played. I absolutely loved it. Even it's an though, incredible role. Yeah, it's a great role. But I, even though I still kind of felt a little bit like, oh, like this is a big role because this is about talking about someone who's experienced racism as a black person in the 60s. I'm not black. Neither of I, am I from the 60s or experienced any of this racism. But, you know, I, I took it on as a role. But my counterpart was um, was white. So she um, she sung the words, you know, I got kicked out of my young 
gifted and black behind. She sung, these are the struggles that I'm facing. You know, she played the same part as I did. And um, not only did she play that part, uh, they made her wear a curly Afro wig in bunches um, and fake tan very severely. And there was no, uh, no kind of suggestion that she wasn't supposed to be playing a black character with her black brother who was played by a black man um i mean did they change the words or anything (laughs) no not at all no she was supposed to be black like and they even there was a conversation about it and they said oh you can you can pass for black i reckon you've got quite a soulful voice to her um a a fully white welsh girl now i just want to say i'm like in case you watched it i hold None of that responsibility onto onto her, the the girl. She was young as well, um, and at the end of the day, this was her musical theatre journey, and that's the part that she got given. In that environment as well, these are people who are meant to be leading you into the industry and exactly. telling you, like, l- guiding you through it. So you listen to what they've got to say, and you imagine if you feel like if you question it, you're stepping out of line. Exactly, and and that is kind of how I felt as well. Um, I, now, looking back, I completely would have been like, no, this is out of order, like, that, this is basically blackface, you can't do that. But at the time, yeah, I had so much going on, these were my teachers, and I was thinking, I want to be in the musical theatre industry so bad, if I say this, they could potentially, I know this is a bit, you know, paranoid, I was thinking, they could kick me out of the school. Yeah. And then, and then what do I do? That's a fair fear to have, I think. Yeah, and although I think the, the cause of, you know, that not happening should have been greater you know as a teenager I think teenagers can be quite selfish and and I was kind of thinking well you know I want to I want to play this part I want to be in the school I don't want to get in trouble so I, I guess I just have to keep my mouth shut so I did and the show went on and yeah she performed as a black woman also to know I had to um I had to fake tan as well because they said I was too light um and I I am too light because I'm not I'm not a black person either, even though I am fifty percent more black than the other one. Um, how are you saying <laughs> that when you say you're not black? So how does you being mixed race kind of inform your experience? As well, you say you're not black. So how do you identify? So would you say you're? You just say you're mixed race, and do you think yeah. that kind of takes away from your blackness at all, or how no, do you kind of negate all. that? So. To me, a, a, and I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because a lot of people kind of have said in the past that I am, I am black, and I'm not at all ignoring my black side, and I do have black heritage, but my race isn't black. I'm, mi- I'm mixed race. I'm 50% white, 50% black, and that's my ethnicity. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of struggle to get their head around that, which um, is mad, really, because there's been so many years of mixed race people existing. But yeah, I'm 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 mixed race, and and that is its own race in itself. So yeah, I I I am do have black heritage, but I've not had as much racism. I've not um I've not the saying that black people aren't British, but like my heritage and my upbringing is inherently kind of white British. I've been brought up in a you know well we went to the same school that that. You'd go into classes and sometimes there wouldn't be a person of colour. Like, it wasn't a... Oh, yeah, absolutely. A very sometimes, mid- like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Standardly. Yeah, so that kind of... It, it, it changes my experience, for sure, as a black person. Were these kind of, 
like coming to terms with how you wanted to identify or how you do identify, was this more of a recent thing? Because I know a lot of my friends have only since George Floyd happened kind of realized mm. how they want to or how they believe themselves to be, if you know what I mean. To be honest, I'm, I'm always identified as mixed race and like, t- to be honest, I understand a lot of mixed race people do identify as black and, you know, fair enough, that that's fine with them and especially kind of, uh, when they're always called black, even if they have white heritage, it's kind of easier almost to be like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm black, whatever. But um, I don't understand that too much because it is genuinely, like, facts. Like, I am not... I can't say I'm black when I'm coming home and seeing my white mum every day. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Do you think a part of it comes from defensiveness where some mixed race people feel like maybe they've always been just seen as black or non-white from in their, from their experience, but then they, within black communities, I know I'm just thinking within like hip hop. So you have rappers like Logic, who is just a mm. massive meme for referencing his mixed raceness. And you also have um, Drake, who, for example, people have called him like a light skin and stuff yeah. like that. Do you think part of the reason to kind of emphasise their blackness is because they feel excluded from both communities? 100%, yeah. Um, yeah, I think people and society have kind of forced people like me to kind of make a decision of what side they identify with more. Um, I know I went on a night out once and um, I was with... A, white friend and this black guy was like oh are are you not like are you dating anyone like trying to chat me up basically and I said no I've got a boyfriend and he took my phone saw that my screensaver had a a white guy on it and he was like why what are you doing like why are you with a why are you with a black guy like you know like you're your own people and I was like what that's mad (laughs) so it's from both sides and then you know equally within white communities you know people assume that I am black fully black and kind of would associate with that kind of culture more um and in fact I am getting to know my uh that culture more I'm half Bayesian so I'm learning more about that culture uh as of recently but yeah it's it's a hard one really you kind of are forced to pick and that's definitely something that I think if you pick your you're not allowed to pick your white side like if I said I identify as white people just would be like no you're not white I couldn't say I'm white which is weird because essentially because of my you know my DNA and my makeup I should be able to say I'm white as much as I can say I'm black which is in my yeah, mind why I am mixed race and kind of be yeah recognized and people will actually accept that That's really exactly so I think a lot of people who are mixed race um, rather than having all the stigma and the confusion that comes with being mixed race, they pick the side that they can pick, which is black. That's, that is very interesting. Mm. And that is, and Tian talks about us being two white guys, whatever, uh, upper lower class, I call it. I'm not middle class. Speak for yourself, <laughs> Tian. Um, <laughs> I say working middle class, but... <laughs> That is, I can assure you, well, for myself, that is something I've never even had to think about, ever, in my life, what I identify like. The, like uh, uh, I am an English person. My dad's 
Northern Irish, but even that, it's just like, it doesn't matter. I'm mm. an English person. And I've never even had to have one second think about whether there's a side I should pick. And it's just something that I just have never understood at all. And and having it explained to me is kind of helpful. <laughs> yeah. Good. Do you think as well, going back to the colourblind casting thing, mm. when you're kind of colourblind casting... In mm. that kind of thing, if you're like, yeah, we're just going to ignore race, that's kind of pushing aside an area of society which you don't really integrate with or know that much about. So, mm. so oh, what I'm saying is if it's like a predominantly white company or predominantly white sphere, which is casting or doing the performance and they're doing colourblind casting, isn't that kind of erasure of race? And it's, we don't actually understand race, we don't integrate with people of different cultures, so we're actually just going to ignore it in our casting. We don't yeah. see colour. And it's like, well, saying you don't see colour when issues of race don't affect you mm. don't, isn't useful, because people do see colour. You see yeah. colour, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Unless 100%. you're actually colourblind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even then, you know, the shades, you can tell. <laughs> it's it's yeah. choosing to ignore the social factors that do mm. affect people and the fact that race is an issue in society and it does affect mm. the choices we make and the way people live. I agree with that. Yeah. I was watching... Um the new Sherlock Holmes things on Netflix. I can't remember. It's like a teen drama Sherlock Holmes thing. <laughs> Is it the Irregulars? The yeah, the Irregulars. That's the one. And that's as far as I'm aware, colorblind casting. And um, and to me, the way I saw that was well, yeah, it doesn't matter because this has nothing to do with race. This program is not referencing like any of the struggles. You can tell that by the fact that there's like Watson is is a person of colour, like Watson wouldn't have been able to get to his position in that time as the, well, maybe he would because Sherlock Holmes was a legend. <laughs> but he wouldn't have been able to, like, to me, the first time I saw it, I kind of thought, like, oh, what, what, how come he's managed it? But then I realised that it was just, like, avoiding all issues and mm. stuff. But to me, that was, to me, I don't know, I was kind of like, cool, I've, we've gotten yeah. over that. Let's just go. Like I'm over. Like obviously, the the the, the main girl is like of I want to say like Asian descent. But like once you've realised that and forgotten it, it mm. it's just English actors playing English parts. Yeah, I. You know what? I think there's positives and negatives of colorblind casting. I think yeah, like you said, when it doesn't, uh, when the context isn't about anything about race. Um, then you're just giving more opportunities to different people, which I think is great. Like, if colourblind casting didn't exist, you know, there'd hardly be any roles for me, to be honest. Um, like, so, yeah, that's really great. But then, yeah, on the same kind of theme, it is ignoring kind of the struggles and actually pretending that you don't see colour. But I think, to be honest, as long as there is racism... Colourblind casting is going to be a tiny, tiny bit of an issue because um, people will kind of see see it and think, oh, that's wrong. But colourblind casting is 100% the way to go um, in general because even though, you know, we should see colour and see people's struggles because that is who individuals are, 
it it shouldn't be like a distinguishing factor of kind of who someone is as a person or as an actor. So yeah, I do think colorblind casting is good, but yeah, I can see the issues with it as well. I think interestingly, when you say about um, colorblind casting, there, so obviously, mm. so there's definitely like good things about it and that. I think it's important to clarify as well. When we said about before, about when there was a white person essentially being put into blackface to mm. play a black character, <laughs> you see arguments online when people say, what's the difference? And it's like, there is a huge difference because yeah. when we talk about equality, we have to remember we're not on an even playing field to begin with. Mm. So when we're not on an even playing field, equality means making sure everyone has the fairest chance and everyone has the opportunities and advantages for them so by in a in a culture especially in hollywood and film and in tv where we know there is a race issue Mm. casting white people into roles for people who are already struggling the whole point behind the colorblind casting thing is people of color are struggling to get roles exactly and i think with this obviously it was i was only like 17 or 18 and it was an amateur production um so a lot of the comments like i received um i think 70 something thousand people saw this video so i had a lot of dms and comments um some racist some positive supporting what i was saying um and yeah it was really kind of interesting because some of them were saying oh, well, it's just a school play, like, the message is still across, like, we obviously know they're supposed to be black, so you're still telling the story. And I was like, yeah, but when we're struggling and and blackface is, like, an issue, um, just to pick a different musical. There's so many other musicals in the world, you can easily teach the children in a class about racism and then make them do, like, just a random musical that doesn't involve casting white people as black people struggling with racism and you know at the time yeah as I said I didn't really realize and I had to fake tan to be honest I got I got carried away with it and it's really bad but I was like I looked in the mirror and I was like oh I could I think I could pass for black now and I was getting excited yeah and that is so problematic in itself like I was literally doing blackface but then no one I don't think anyone saw it as a problem because yeah to me I was one of the black ones I was one of the ones who actually <laughs> had black heritage in the cast um but I look that I look back on that and cringe so much because some of the cast photos when you see them like I'm unrecognizable like I'm literally like I look black I want to see um, some of these yeah, <laughs> I want to see that whole cast to be honest <laughs> yeah I know I'm scared that you know 10 years in the future when I hopefully have a, a great successful acting career I'll be on Graham Norton and those those pictures I'll will come and bite up. me in the ass, <laughs> and I'll be cancelled <laughs> people said it was just too soon to remake Jordan Peele's Get Out but what can I say I'm an innovator I've always said that despite being a contemporary classic, its themes are just so outdated. Which is why, of course, I'll be completely colorblind casting the project. I actually don't see color. What if instead of acknowledging systemic racism, we all just pretend it didn't exist? These are the questions we ask ourselves. The tale has some wonderful subtle humour, but the gags are really weighed down by social commentary, as well as Daniel Kalua's dull performance, which is why our new best person for the job policy means the young protagonist who thwarts the racist Armitage clan will be played by someone who can really bring some zaniness to the antics. Chris 
Prot. Now there's a man who knows his way around a punchline. We're actually still casting Rose Armitage, so feel free to get in touch. Professionals only, please. I will not tolerate refusal to undress in our one-to-one auditions in my hotel bedroom. Uh, we do have to start um, winding things up soon. Um, thank you yeah. so much for joining us today. I mean, obviously, like I said at the start, as two white guys, it, it really helps kind of being able to share these, like hear other people's perspectives and have them engage with us in these conversations. Because we do, like I say, we do our reading. We We try and engage with these things, but I don't think... I think always the best way is hearing firsthand and being able to emphasise with people's personal experience. So really, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing this with us. My pleasure. Thank you for giving me a, a platform to talk about this stuff. Oh, it's great. And so um, with the listeners, um, like we say, do you have two wonderful Instagram accounts. Where can we find those? So I'm live underscore Anne, so L-I-V-V underscore A-N-N, and that's my, like, main thing where I talk about everything and then Liv reads a book for all things book related um, you can also check me and Wes out on social media Wes is on Instagram at WesleyStrong666 very edgy <laughs> I'm at Tian Bunyan 420 no I'm joking <laughs> <laughs> at Tian Bunyan uh, just at Tian Bunyan uh, you can also of course follow How About Gang on Instagram and all other forms of social media you can find us at How About Gang on Instagram at How About Gang on Twitter How About Gang on Facebook Bung How About Gang into YouTube give us a subscribe we very much appreciate it please I'm not beyond begging please please follow us have a lovely week all goodbye thanks <laughs> bye